Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Running a restaurant involves making a lot of tough decisions, but choosing Touch Bistro's POS isn't one of them. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, offers an all-in-one POS and restaurant management system that's easy to use, easy to manage, and easy to afford. Find out why thousands of restaurants trust Touch Bistro to help them simplify operations, increase sales, and deliver a great guest experience. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. And welcome to another Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. We want to welcome to our program, Ryan Soroka. Ryan loves his title. I love telling everyone his title because he's an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about what that means because he's going to share his story from food truck to brick and mortar to craft brewer, one of the more successful uh, craft brew companies that I know. So, Ryan, welcome to Corner Booth. Thank you, Chris. Hello, Barry. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So, my name is Ryan Soroka. I'm president and co-founder and hype man of Eighth Wonder Brewery here in Houston, Texas. We opened our doors in 2013 in East Downtown. At that time, we were the sixth brewery to open in the fifth largest city in America. Fast forward to today, there's over 60 brewers in Greater Houston. And in 2018, we actually also opened our distillery. But I'm born and raised in Houston, big food and beverage guy to college at Tulane University in New Orleans. I was a finance and marketing major. Uh, That's where I actually learned how to homebrew. My friends, they all went abroad junior year. And I said, I need to get a hobby. So I got a dog and I learned how to brew beer. It was just a little hobby of mine, stuck with me. And graduated in 06, moved back to Houston, got a job as a financial consultant, good, great, grand. Then the recession hit and kind of first hire, first fire. So I took a little severance check and kind of got to know my local bar and restaurant scene pretty well. And Houston's always been a great food and beverage town. Uh, New Orleans is arguably one of the best food and beverage towns. You know, little did I know I was just fully immersed my whole life in food and beverage um, and kind of jumping into the industry, working in bars, working in restaurants, kind of reignited or I I guess discovered my passion for this industry. Told my parents, I want to open up a restaurant. They said, great idea. Go back to school. And it was at that time when I did research and I realized that in my backyard is one of the best hospitality schools in the country, the University of Houston, Hilton College Hotel and Restaurant Management Program. So I applied there for a master's program in hospitality management and I got accepted. And then a semester later, I applied to the Bauer College at the University of Houston for a joint MBA and master's in hospitality management. Um, And it was my time there where I met my current business partner and friend, Aaron Corsi. He is a co-founder and master brewer and head distiller, operations manager here at 8th Wonder. But really in grad school, I wrote the business plan for the brewery and I wrote a business plan for 
our other business, which has uh, sadly sunsetted, but we had a great 10 year run. It was called Eatsy Boys. We started as vendors in food farmers markets, then eventually got several food trucks, then a brick and mortar. And then we opened our trucks here at the brewery. But ultimately, we've kind of wound that down and been focusing our efforts in the brewery. We have a fairly large wholesale operation. We have a large tap room operation here. And really, with the growth and expansion of our spirits line, have been uh, really focusing our efforts there. And we have a very uh, promising, exciting non-alcoholic beverage line, hemp beverages that are, I mean, we can barely keep up with demand, but that's kind of where we land now. Okay. And yeah, that's a pretty brief, quick synopsis. Well, we'll give you an opportunity to go into each of those steps in greater detail, because if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to go to the beginning. There's a, probably a lot sure. of listeners uh, that would like to know how you took that first step. You know, a lot of restaurateurs are listening. A lot of independent operators read the magazine. They study the website because what they're trying to do is get started. And more today than ever before, getting started with a food truck. You sort of pioneered it. Maybe you could tell us how you got it started. What were the steps? How did you market? Where did you find to go? How did you menu? Because for years, that was a pretty successful thing, as I remember. Absolutely. Yes. Look, it all started with passion, right? Just taking a step back and getting out of corporate America and kind of seeing what it is that I loved, what it is that I wanted to pursue and try to make a career out of it. And while I liked finance, I wasn't necessarily passionate about it. And so, you know, by necessity, again, the recession that ended my brief life in corporate America kind of dumped me into this new trajectory. But really, yeah, it, it all started with kind of getting to know the local bar and restaurant scene here, both as a regular customer, as well as working in both bars and restaurants. And once I had about a year under my belt in that industry, I realized, okay, this is something that I really do enjoy. I understand the ins and the outs. I understand that it's a non-traditional industry and, you know, it has its own challenges. Um, and it's, it also is a very rewarding one, especially if you really love it. And I was just instantly, I knew that I needed, this is what I wanted to focus on next. And that really did kickstart the whole grad school program. And I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that any restaurateur or brewer or really any business person needs to go to grad school. But for me, that's the course I took. And I found it very valuable as I studied courses in menu developments that, you know, took all the, I took several uh, finance and accounting courses through undergrad and in the MBA program, but taking those courses geared towards the industry, I found a lot of value in that. You know, restaurant marketing, uh, food costing, operations management, right? So all these things, sure, it's conceptual textbook stuff, but, and not necessarily everyone either learns that way or appreciates that way, but I do, and I did, and I found it very, um, very important. Not to mention, I mean, that is where I found my, my business partner. So Aaron and I met, we were just students getting our, uh, our master's degree in hospitality management. And I met Aaron and he was at that point, a graduate assistant in the beverage department, uh, brewing, winemaking, and distilling. He has since then taken over that department. But at that time, you know, he was a graduate assistant getting his degree. Like I was getting my degree and we hit it off and we soon both discovered that we were home brewers. And then I quickly discovered that he was this graduate assistant. I was like, okay, this guy knows, I mean, I know how to brew beer, but this guy knows 
the sciences behind it and the ins and outs and the, you know, molecular fine tuned details behind it. And I quickly knew that if I'm going to start this business, I need to bring someone on that knows more than I do about this particular side of it. Um, I like to think that my strength is more on uh, the marketing side and branding. Um, but he was instrumental in writing this business plan. So I found value in the grad school in networking, uh, had some great mentors, Chris, you might know one. I had some great working experiences, part-time experiences, a la carte consulting provided and opened up my eyes to the industry and just great professors along the way that, that supported me um, and, and really helped form and shape this business plan. But at that time in grad school, when I was writing this business plan, Remember, this all started when I told my parents, I want to open up a restaurant. Well, again, quickly when I joined the grad program, I said, okay, I met Aaron. I've been homebrewing for several years now. Wait, we're in the city of Houston, 5 million people. There at that time were two breweries in Houston, Texas. And that's kind of when a light bulb went off. I was like, okay, I think there's an opportunity here. How does a city of 5 million people have two craft breweries? Like that does not make sense. So the restaurant morphed to a brew pub. So I started writing a business plan for a brew pub, restaurant and brewery. Well, at that time, Texas laws were not very favorable to that business model. They have since then changed and have become more favorable. And as such, you've seen a huge wave of Texas brew pubs entering. And I, I'm happy and that's great for the industry. But at that time, it was not a very favorable model to open a brew pub. So pretty quickly in my early phases of this business planning, I realized, okay, let's drop the food element and just focus on a microbrewery, a production brewery. So that's kind of where all the effort went. Business plan okay. focused there. I start raising capital through friends and family. Um, and then a friend of mine out of nowhere, just kind of as luck should strike, reached out to me and said, Hey, Ryan, I hear you're at uh, Hilton College at the University of Houston for hotel and restaurant management. You want to open up a food truck with me? And that's kind of like this light bulb went off. I said, okay, maybe that's how we incorporate the food component back into this brewery is we open these kind of independent, but, you know, related entities that would kind of fill that, that need for food and beer. Um, well, I'll say that the food truck took about um, two months and maybe um, five to 10% of the capital needed for the brewery, which took about two years and a lot more money to get started. Mm -hmm. So we really quickly launched this food truck and we were just fortunate to kind of hit the Houston market at the right time. We were one of the first four gourmet chef-driven food trucks in the city of Houston. Uh, now there have been food trucks for decades, but again, this new kind of chef driven gourmet high end food truck was new and we hit the streets. We, uh, named ourselves Eatsy Boys. That was with my partner, Alex Vasilikitas and, uh, chef Matt Marcus. And we were three young, excited guys get into the food truck industry and we hit the Houston streets hard and we got a lot of press and won a lot of uh, food awards and marketing awards and really made a name for ourselves. And that actually helped get attention and gain investors through all the press we were getting for the brewery. 
So while ET Boys is no longer today, and there were many lives of ET Boys, and we can go into detail if you like, but I will always cherish and remember ET Boys. And really, it'll always live on as a small part of Eighth Wonder because if it wasn't for kind of starting and launching, and don't forget, I was writing the business plan for a brewery. Friend reaches out, food truck. Well, hey, again, smaller scale, smaller scope project to get up and running. That business got up and running and really kind of propelled and gave way to the brewery in its own regard. So yeah, kind of that's how that's how that started. One of the things I want to ask you, um, Ryan, and to see if it's still relevant, particularly in your market, you know, one of the, the things about uh, creating craft brewery that is different in my my opinion than starting a restaurant in a restaurant and Chris jump in there. If you think I'm wrong, location is just so critical. You have to be in some area where you've got the market there. You, the people who you want to serve are around. I've seen time and time again, including in Houston where you have an opera craft brewery operation getting in on real estate that is outskirt of an industrial park next to the railroad tracks, probably the best worst commercial space you can imagine. And there's just this build it and they will come thing that goes on with craft breweries. Did any of that figure into your business model in terms of, you know, where you located your, your operation um, where you were able to get a foothold. Um, Can you speak to that a bit? Absolutely. Barry. So I agree about with 90% of that statement in the, in that, yes, location is incredibly important. However, when we signed our lease in this space in 2011, this neighborhood, while geographically central, I mean, we, you look up brewery map of Houston, Texas, the one that's right in the center of Houston is us. Mm -hmm. While geographically the most central prime in the shadow of downtown fifth largest city in America, no one was hanging out in this part of town. Drug addicts, homeless people, prostitutes, questionable people here, right? I mean, this was a rundown warehouse row that was neglected for decades. But there was, so I started my search in East downtown Houston, okay? And I didn't see anything and started looking up in North Houston. Then started, went and looked in East Houston by the port, then went down to South Houston, uh, then went closer to University of Houston, then almost signed a lease in a 1800 square foot house in the rice village. That would have been a disaster. And we've circled back. I was like, you know what? Let me just kind of look one more time in East downtown. But for me, Barry, I knew location was important, at least for what we were trying to do. I wanted to be in a central part of town. I wanted to be, you know, close to the action. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to set up in the outskirts of town, right? I wanted to set up a brewery in the center of Houston, Texas. And so I, I went back to East downtown. We eventually found the warehouse that we we're in. We signed up a, a lease for 5,000 square feet. We've since expanded, but, you know, signed, took roll the dice on 5,000 square feet, scariest signature I've, you know, we've ever signed to, uh, to get this business up and running, especially considering how like terrible the neighborhood was. Well, if you come and visit our neighborhood today, I mean, there's now, 10, 12 bars and restaurants that built up around us. Um, we are walking distance to three out of the four major sports stadiums here in Houston. Uh, we are walking distance to downtown, the convention center. So location was important, 100%. I knew I wanted to be central. But the, the other 10%, I mean, 
at first glance, you wouldn't want to be in this neighborhood 10 years ago. Right. So we definitely kind of roll the dice a little bit. We're like, well, look, a place like this is going to have cheap rent and we need a cheap rent, lots of space. And it checked that box and slowly the neighborhood developed around us and it's still developing. But um, now it's also twofold on kind of what kind of business model you're doing for craft brewery, because, you know, on the production side of things, we could open up a warehouse in East Houston at a fraction of the cost per square foot, right? That might not be the most high traffic tap room, but we are fortunate that we're able to have both our wholesale commercial brewing operation here and have our tap room on site, which is a huge, you know, tailgating spot, very busy on the weekends. If there's conventions in town, you know, pre pandemic, great, uh, kind of business lunch spot and corp- and corporate happy hours after work. We're starting to see that pick back up as more and more tenants come back downtown. But, um, you know, there's plenty of breweries that can set up shop in kind of remote areas. If they're going to kind of focus in wholesale, maybe have a small little tap room presence there. Um, but if you want to have a big kind of retail tap room presence, then yeah, hundred percent, you want to be where the people are. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, Chris, it's something that I've been saying for a long time, just merely by observation. And even though, I mean, your location is great because you're near lots of people. You're in an area, as you said, it was kind of dodgy. And brew pubs, unlike any other aspect of the hospitality industry, can be anchors for revitalization of, of yes. distressed urban areas and Absolutely. be anchors for other hospitality. I, I've seen it. I've seen it in North Carolina. And All over the country. If I'm, if I'm getting what Ryan's saying, I, that's pretty much what happened when you guys uh, set up shop. That's what really look, we, we weren't well funded. We were bootstrapped, friends and family. I mean, you can open a fraction of our brewery today with the funds that we opened, you know, 10 years ago, nine years ago. Um, so with that, one of our biggest things are we need a lot of space for little rents. And you're going to take what you get with that. And for us was this very questionable warehouse district, but it just so happened to be in this very ideal geographic location that we said, let's make a bet and let's hope that the neighborhood kind of builds up around us. And yeah, it, it and that has. Is, that is a successful uh, trend. You know, you know, Barry, as you underlined, you see it. Some of these successful craft, you know, uh, breweries, much like in Ryan's case, are that way. They're looking for a warehouse. So we know that warehouse districts, just by virtue of being a warehouse district, are a little bit off a beaten path. They're not necessarily like a retail district. So they're lesser convenient. That also drives lesser rent. Um, But because they need big space and limited rent is what typically drives them into these maybe older, uh, not so preferred neighborhoods. But I think you made a really good point because nationwide we see this, that because these are really welcoming destinations, you know, people go uh, out of their way for a brewery experience to take the tour, do the tastings, have something to eat, have an after work party. So they do sort of spear on other hospitality. Um, I've seen this everywhere I've gone, California, uh, throughout Arizona, uh, Colorado, uh, Texas, as you mentioned, Carolinas, I'm pretty sure everywhere. You can find a really good spot where a craft brewery has revitalized uh, an old area town. Now you've got lofts, offices, cafes, and some retail shops. 
um, all built around that. So they're beautiful things. The other part I want to talk to you, ask you about, Ryan, um, is, I mean, you went through the time and effort uh, to get a really good education at Conrad Hilton on the restaurant business. And you put in your time with restaurants and bars. So you're someone who I would imagine knows quite a bit more than a lot of people who are getting into just craft brewery. But um, and as you suggested, food trucks, you really for a lot of craft brewers that's basically their food service and it works very well Mm -hmm. there are craft brewers who are saying you know what i think i'm going to try to set up a restaurant here some more successfully than others but i'm seeing it if i'm hearing you that's not part of your business right now even though i'm guessing you could do it as well as anybody else that's running a brew pub can you talk about that decision um in terms of, do I want to have on-site food service here, or do I just want to just invite the food trucks? And I'm going to focus on, on uh, beer and 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 distilled products. Of course. Well, honestly, that decision was made for us. Our landlord strictly said, "You're not building a kitchen in here." Okay. So that decision, so that really guided us easily, right? And we're like, well, if that's the case, fine. We'll make we'll figure it out, and we're going to bring our truck on site. But we knew if we're serving beer, we want some food there to keep guests there longer, soak up some alcohol um, and be another, you know, something that draws people there. We want people to not only come try the beer, but at that point we were uh, cooking our food. Right. And we wanted them there. Um, Even though we have wound down our food truck, we have a food truck here every single day. And we, since we've been in the food truck industry for over 10 years in Houston, we have a strong relationship with the best of the best in town. And, um, you know, we make sure that we have a good offering here, uh, on site, but look, my opinion is my own, but I think if you're going to get into the hospitality industry, you need to have at least one or the other, you don't have to go and get an education in the traditional school version, but you should get your education and work in the industry for a little bit before you can go out and start your own. Or vice versa, right? Um, I, I got a taste of both. Um, I think this industry is romanticized quite a bit. And people, oh, I want to open up a restaurant. That, that looks great. That sounds great. Oh, I want to open up a brewery. That looks great. That sounds great. It is. However, it's a business. And it's difficult. And challenges arise every day. Um, you know, being prepared and, and having insight whether that comes from academia or that comes from the school of hard knocks and just going and waiting tables and serving drinks i think one of those two are incredibly important to just ensure you know what you're getting into and really just soak up as much information as you can before you step on your own um yeah just if you if you could have uh had on-site food service a restaurant um would you is now that you've had this experience is that is that something you would recommend if i came to you hey ryan i want to do what you're doing and i'm really thinking about having on-site on-site food service um how would you advise me you know i think first understanding what your concept and what you're trying to do is important you know are you a brewery first are you a restaurant first are you both that then will help shape what kind of food operation you're going to have Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
I think, yeah, look, if we were able to do it, we would have done it. We would have had to raise more money because what we raised was for just commercial brewing operation. Sure. Um, but at that time, yes. Now, having operated for 10 years, not nine years, um, and seeing what kind of operate, what kind of food concepts have worked here on site, I think I, we would definitely tailor I think back then our eyes would have been wide, you know, bright eyed and just let's get this and let's offer this and let's be this kind of food. I think we, you know, just again, my two cents, we would have a, if we were to do it on site, which I'm not opposed to and build out a kitchen and all that, it would still be a more focused food concept. And I think we'd keep it to just basics and not have an overly complex or a overly tedious menu, you know, um, things that really, people just traditionally enjoy with uh, some beers, right? Mm -hmm. um, don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel. That doesn't mean it needs to be boring or low quality or anything like that. But, you know, nine, 10 years ago, we would have been like, we're going to do a gastro pub and have, uh, you know, shape-shifting dishes. And Okay. I think having an incredible burger, some delicious loaded fries, uh, some wings – uh, some rotating special steak nights and, um, you know, barbecue. Good. I, go I, wrong that, that. that here in Texas in, in Houston, that works really well for us at our location. And if we were to do a kitchen, I think we would, you know, tailor it to just kind of be able to do the essentials at a really high level and with our kind of twist on it. Mm -hmm. To that point, um, can you talk a little bit about your, your beer menu offerings? Because I'm wondering can you, or perhaps do you, use some of your beer to cook? Are there any marinades? Is there any beer batters or that kind of thing? Absolutely. So, you know, we have quite a bit, I'm walking you through the office a little bit, but I mean, these are all the beers, just some of the beers that we have released in commercial setting, canned, you know, around Houston, around Texas. Um, in our tap room, we'll have, you know, 15 to 20 beers on tap at any given time. Okay. In the wholesale market, we'll have anywhere from, I call it like six to 10 beers out in the wholesale at any given time. Uh, um, wide, range, wide range of beer. We are not a one-trick pony beer. We really try to uh, you know, offer something for everyone. Uh, light beers, malty beers, hoppy beers, sour beers, dark beers, uh, fruited beers, it goes on and on. Right. Um, yes. And I think a lot of our beers um, we've designed with a few things in mind, a, our climate here. All right. It's a very cool 92 degrees right now in Houston, Texas. Um, but it's basically summer, you know, 10 months a year here, nine months a year here. So we're not a brewery that brews a lot of 12% stouts. It's just not something we do on a regular basis. Okay. Uh, you know, our sweet spot are beers that are basically five and a half, six percent and under. Some okay. of our most popular beers are under four percent. Right. Other things that we kind of take into consideration when we're brewing is, yeah, beers that are going to lend themselves well to enjoying a burger or having some barbecue or eating some tacos. Okay. Um, right. So while it's not necessarily the guiding force, it's something that we have in consideration, uh, take into consideration. We 
have often uh, shared fun beer recipes, whether it's beer batters, whether it's uh, beer bread recipes, marinades for fajitas, th- things like that, wing, wing, beer wing batter stuff. I mean, yes, we definitely have fun with the culinary side with beer. We partner with not only the food trucks that are on site here, but we'll go and work with bars and restaurants off site and do fun promos and specials and marinades and, and fun cross promoting and, and recipe development in that regard too. Um, some beers that really do have almost a culinary twist on it, on the recipe. We have a very popular beer here called rocket fuel and it's a Vietnamese coffee porter. Let me grab the can real quick. Rocket fuel, Vietnamese coffee porter. Um, so this warehouse district that we're in is actually the original Asia town of Houston. It's since moved to Southwest Houston about 10 miles out or so, but this is the original Asia town. Um, a lot of original Vietnamese and Chinese suppliers, wholesalers, coffee shops, banh mi shops, restaurants and such. And there's still a few that, that are here. Uh, shout out to Huynh, an amazing uh, Vietnamese restaurant two blocks from the brewery. When we were building out this brewery, Huynh basically kept us alive with their banh mi's and their Vietnamese iced coffees, their cafe suda right? It's a very strong coffee and sweet with condensed milk. We said we wanted to brew a beer that paid tribute to a cafe suda, to a Vietnamese iced coffee. So we developed a porter. We then, which is, you know, a, a not quite as dark and uh, roasty as a stout, but it is a darker beer, kind of natural flavors of coffee and chocolate in that beer. And we partnered with a local gourmet coffee company called Greenway Coffee Company. They brewed us a very dark, robust coffee. And a little side note, a Vietnamese coffee, a uh, Cafe Suda, doesn't necessarily or always have Vietnamese coffee. Actually, the most common bean that they use is a French roast. A v- it, the Vietnamese, their coffees were typically dark, strong, robust coffee beans that were brewed very, very concentrated and sweetened with condensed milk. Again, that could be a French roast, that could be a Vietnamese roast, yeah. that could be a Brazilian roast. It doesn't really matter so long as it's dark and robust but we rotate our coffee beans sometimes they're from vietnam sometimes they're from you know french roast sometimes they're south america and we said let's brew this porter and add some coffee and we need to sweeten it with well we're not gonna use condensed milk but we use lactose which is milk sugar so it's basically a milk porter with cold brew coffee that is a really tasty breakfast beer dessert beer um, but one of our most popular styles for sure. Is there a signature brew for you it guys? It is a uh, year round beer. Uh, definitely one of our most sought after beers. It's pretty mild alcohol, 5% ABV sure. again, by design, hard to sell a beer here in 90 degree heat when it's a 12% molasses, you know? Right. You can get very drunk very quickly when it's that. Yeah. Mild. Well, and it's just filling and hard to drink in this heat. Yeah. Um, on the almost other side of the spectrum on um, flavor, as well as kind of color and also lower ABV. This beer is called Haterade, and it is a traditional German Goza. A Goza is a beer style that went nearly extinct, but it's a very old German historical beer style. It's been seeing a pretty large resurgence in the last five to 10 years, but um, it is a sour wheat beer brewed with coriander and sea salt. Wow. This is my, this is my favorite beer. I love this. One of my favorite styles. It's favorite beer that we make. 
3.3% ABV, mm-hmm. low ABV, again, by design, you can have plenty of them responsibly, full of flavor. It's called Haterade. Well, I can just tell you it tastes like a um, lemon-lime refreshing sports beverage. And, you know, we brewed it tongue-in-cheek with the name in that while there was plenty of people who supported us along the way, I think many entrepreneurs will also find that there's people who are haters and will tell them that's a terrible idea. It'll never work. What are you doing? What a, what, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. Well, this beer is brewed in honor of those folks. Uh, <laughs> Quite literally motivated us to tell them and prove to them that we're going to do this. We're not wrong. You're wrong. So uh, for those salty folks out there, we brewed a salty beer for them. Uh, It is delicious. It is got subtle kind of citrus flavor and element to it. Super refreshing, you know, mildly salty. It's a delicious beer. That beer lends itself very well for us to do uh, infusions with different fruits so we've done a mango version. We do a wildberry version. We do a watermelon version. We do a uh, boysenberry. You name the fruit, we'll, we'll mix it in there. And the kind of salty, sour element really lends itself well to fruit and kind of almost balances the tartness a little bit, depending on what kind of fruit you implement. That's a really fun kind of culinary forward beer that we use a lot that a lot of chefs enjoy making marinades with and cooking with. Um, but yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I think right about now, every listener that's in the process of startup, business planning, yeah. development is quickly making a note. What menu item can we create uh, that we could call, you know, to the non-sayers, to the nose, because everyone does <laughs> want to, you know, speak to the many, many people that turn them down before they finally exactly. find the ones that, that provide them with the confidence needed to go forward. Exactly. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro powers thousands of restaurants with its all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform. Beyond its exceptionally easy-to-use point of sale, Touch Bistro provides best-in-class customer engagement products for online ordering, loyalty, email marketing, and gift cards. Whether you're focused on restaurant operations or keeping customers coming back for more, Touch Bistro can help. And now, back to Chris and Barry. Ryan, something that you said in passing, which surprised me, but it may be because I need some education here, is that you offer uh, sours as part of your um, offerings. And my experience is that breweries that tend to focus on sours really focus pretty heavily on sours with not much else and vice versa. Um, And I've given various explanations, but hopefully you're going to educate me on that. I'm kind of a sours convert. As we both know, its popularity, it really took off a few years ago. Am I reading too much into that? Or is, is it kind of an unusual deal for you to be doing sours and then other types of craft beers under the same roof? You know, I don't think it's uncommon. Look, there are some breweries that they land on a style, whether, whether their specific recipe is just, you know, off the charts amazing or really they kind of landed a trend at the right time, right place for their market. And then they'll just go hundred percent all in on that style. Right. I mean, there are some very successful all IPA breweries down here, right. That kind of hit some trends ahead of time. Mm, and right. I'm not saying they don't brew other beers and don't brew them well, but like they're kind of known as the IPA brewery. You know, we were talking about a brewery offline beforehand that is very well known for their sour, 
uh, beer. I think that can be a function, okay, of just, hey, we landed on, we, we, we hit the sweet spot, at least in our market, or just we, it resonates with people who are buying our product and we can really, you know, ride that kind of hyper niche style out. Sure, plenty of breweries that do that. More to your point specifically with the sours, there is something to that. There are pretty easily and clearly defined two types of sours. You have kettle sours and you have wild sours. To back up, Haterade, this Goza, is a kettle sour. So again, kettle sour and wild sour. Wild sours are exactly what they sound like. That is a wild bacteria contaminating, you know, introducing a wild bacteria and contaminating your, for all intents and purposes, your batch of beer in the fermenting stage or in the, you know, post-boil. And with that wild comes a lot of variable outcomes. Very often, some are undesirable. And oftentimes, some are amazing, right? But it's kind of this wild card on what you're going to get. And there's mm-hmm. brewers who kind of hone that craft and are getting much better at it. One of the risks of kind of playing around with these wild sours is you can contaminate the rest of your brewery. Yeah, that's that what is, I've heard. That has yeah. been, you know, it's happened. It's not uncommon. There are breweries like, oh, we'll just do a little bit of wild sours and really stick to a lot of other clean beer, clean being non-sour, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's been plenty of examples where, oops, we can't control the wild sour anymore. I guess we're a wild sour brewery now, right? Um, the kettle sours, as I mentioned, those are more of a controlled sour, okay? We are inoculating with the bacteria in the kettle and then boiling and creating and and getting that sour and acidity and that pH level to our desired range and then boiling it again and killing the bug, killing the bacteria. So it will not spread. Now, of course, there's still risk of it spreading if you're not following SOPs and cleaning appropriately and what have you. But the kettle sour in comparison to the wild sour is a lot easier to contain and to control um, and this Goza is a traditional kettle style sour. Uh, I imagine there's non kettle sour Gozas as well. That would be mm-hmm. more of a question for my business partner and beer master. Um, but yeah, the, you know, those wild sours can kind of take a life of their own for better or for worse. And we have played around with some wild sour stuff in barrels, but you know, uh, led to a small contamination of some small equipment that we've since kind of quarantined but yeah you know um i would say our strength is in these kettle sours personally for me sometimes the wild sours can be overly acidic and like just off the charts for me personally there's plenty of people who really really enjoy that the kettle sour i find to be most of the time in a much more manageable acidity again for my palate for my preference (laughs) Thanks for the education. I appreciate it. Of course. I want to take you back a step just for a moment um, because you made me think of something when you're talking about what worked for you in the development process of this, where it was sort of the combination of uh, the grad school, the business planning, and the hands-on experience. I think you were saying that you definitely recommended one or the other. What worked for you was the both. And I wanted to have you comment also on sort of the searching out for the specific niches that you were studying, because um, didn't you do some interning? Didn't you go to Schmaltz Brewery in Coney Island? And it was that a good step 
Is that something great. you recommend to people opening their business? hundred percent. I mean, that's the, that's the hands-on experience that I needed specifically for the brewing industry. Sure. I waited tables, got some of my restaurant experience there. Yeah. I uh, worked in some bars primarily uh, under branding and promotion and, and uh, some management. Um, but that, the thing that was missing, and, and yes, I had several years of home brewing under my belt, but I was missing a commercial uh, brewing experience. So my girlfriend, my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time, I was living with her in New York. I was, excuse me, I was in Houston. She was in New York. I moved up with her for one summer because she found me an internship at a brewery called Schmaltz Brewing. And I went up there, lived with her and was working as a sales rep in uh, New York City, primarily in Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan and uh, was selling beer. So I got some beer sales experience, which is crucial. Uh, but I also got some commercial. This is Ocho. Hi, everyone. I don't know if the camera's live or not. It's our brewery cat um, making an appearance. So um, I got some commercial experience. Now, let me back this up. This brewery was more of a novelty and it was uh, marketed as the world's smallest commercial brewery. Tongue in cheek. It was, you know, I don't know, like, like one gallon brew setup, right? But there was a little storefront on Coney Island and that was my first commercial. And I say that pretty loosely with air quotes mm -hmm. experience uh, because clearly that beer that was being brewed on that one gallon was not the beer that was being sold, you know, around New York. There was, that brew was actually a contract brewery. That was, so the larger scale commercial stuff is being brewed at a real brewery. But again, kind of going from my home brew that only my friends and family were, were enjoying to even scaling up to this tiny little nano, nano microscopic brewery that still, I mean, people came in and they enjoyed the beers that we would, you know, make there. Uh, that was, that was important to get some of that insight. But when I moved back after my summer stay there, I did get one last internship at this brew pub. Uh, Chris, you might remember it was called Turo. It was a, I do. a, a brew pub in Houston. Uh, it closed several years ago. But right before they closed, I got in there for a month and learned how to brew on a 10 barrel system, if my memory serves me correct, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, that's a 300 gallon operation, 310 gallon operation compared to the little one gallon. So, you know, in the last month of their operation, I learned how to at least brew on that scale, uh, how to clean it, how to, how to run that system. And that was eye opening and very important. You know, uh, Ryan, as you would imagine, a number of the podcasts that Chris and I have are, are with uh, people who are totally focused on restaurant and food service. And, and invariably, the conversation turns to the labor crisis and supply chain issues, which you just can't avoid because they really hang over the head of the business. You know, I, I, I'm not that uh, heavily into the, the brew pub scene and business wise, but I do talk to operators and I, I don't, I don't hear that complaint much. Is there something that is insulating that market from a lot of those problems or is just brew pub owners more stoic than restaurateurs? No, I can't exactly speak for other folks. Maybe it's a function also of just geographic markets and having, you know, some markets might be more insulated than others. Um, 
look, we've definitely are feeling the squeeze from this kind of pandemic, you know, what, what it's created. We've got a good team, but we, you know, had to make a, a, a hiring call as we we're kind of reopening and coming back into this world. And it definitely seemed like something was different. Um, maybe this pandemic opened the eyes of a lot of people in the hospitality industry and said, Hey, you know, I, this is my time to get out or I, you know, I'm going to press reset and try something new for a while we were feeling, and it was hard to get folks. I can say it's definitely uh, dissipated and it's not necessarily the same on the uh, labor side of things, but we're definitely feeling, you know, inflation, raw, raw materials have gone up lead times to source certain things have went for a while. I mean, we, we're trying to get new bottles for our distillery. It took us a year. It took us 12 months wow. to get glass bottles on something that would take probably, I don't know, three, maybe four months max. We, we dodged a bullet, but there was big news in the craft brewing industry when the largest can manufacturer in, I think the world, but definitely in the United States basically said, that they were upping their minimum order five times by five X. So that essentially, unless you were a top 50 brewery in America and there's, you know, over 8,000 of us or something, maybe 10,000, close to 10,000. That basically was like, unless you're a top 50 player in America, see you later. Right. We were with that canning company for a while, but we left them several years ago and went to a different manufacturer. Now this other manufacturer, change their minimums too, not nearly as aggressive as this other major player. Fortunately, it did not impact us. We're kind of grandfathered in, but the cost of aluminum has gone up. We've got friends in the industry who were just unable to get cans for several months. I mean, we basically sold them ours at cost and they put stickers over them and you could see some beers with a different brewery. And then but if you peel the sticker, it had our can and people were like, what's going on here. And it was a fun mm-hmm. story. And, you know, to tell people like, Hey, our friends needed help, you know, um, we're not a charity, so we couldn't give it to them for free, but you know, Hey, we have some surplus cans that we're basically weren't using anymore on a certain uh, style that we kind of discontinued. Yeah. Like ha- have at it. Right. So look, we're, we're seeing these economic impacts in different ways. You know, we've seen, you know, a lot, a lot of folks were like, oh, you, you almost killed it during the pandemic. Everyone was drinking so much booze. Well, yes, there was definitely a little bit of a novelty factor and kind of honeymooning, like, oh, I'm just drinking from home all day, Zoom meetings. You know, we, I think everyone rode that for two, three months or so, right? But I think reality came back down, right? And um, really, I would say we were fortunate in that we do have grocery store presence, okay? But that is kind of a lower profit margin item for us, right? That's more of a volume play and just visibility and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on a, on a per ounce basis, it's not necessarily our most profitable product, right? But for five months, our tap room was closed down. I like to think of Eighth Wonder as a three-legged stool, okay? Our tap room being one, grocery stores and package stores being two, and then bars and restaurants on-premise accounts being three. Well, guess what? Two out of those three were closed down, governmentally mandated. Bars and restaurants and our tap room were shut down. So essentially more than two thirds of our revenue stream were just closed for five plus months. Again, there was that kind of novelty boom where people made a mad dash, supported all their breweries, went to the stores, came to us and our tapping stuff. But honestly, players that had the biggest gains in those stores are mainly macro and the largest players and really the brewers that had large format. 
12 packs, 18 packs, 24 packs, right? Because at a certain point, people were economy buying. Hey, I don't know when I'm going to get another paycheck. Yeah, we were in grocery stores and we did fine, but it wasn't what people really thought. And I think people also forgot or weren't aware of the fact, well, hey, our taproom was shut down for five months. And our accounts, our, our customers, our buyers, bars and restaurants across town in the state, they were closed down for several months. Right. And now what we're seeing some long-term effects of this, I think some of the purchasing behaviors have changed on a lot of these on-premise accounts, these bars and restaurants. I think the days of them sitting on a lot of inventory, you know, some accounts buy a keg and have one or two keg backup. That may have shifted to just having one keg, right? They don't want to sit on a lot of inventory because a lot of people during the pandemic, they got stuck with a lot of inventory, right? And, and couldn't move it. So I think it kind of shaped a little bit consumer purchase behaviors. Um, maybe they're temporary. Hopefully they're tempor- temporary. You know, we see still kind of the major beer buyers, the major beer bars, the high volume bars. They're going to stick to their purchasing because they kind of understand. But some of these more specialty spots or bar or smaller bars and restaurants that used to have larger inventory, I think you're seeing them tighten their controls a little bit and be like, hey, I don't want so much ha- cash sitting in a refrigerator. You know, I, I want to have a little bit more cash accessible to, to operate the business. So right. those are some changes that we've seen. And one of the changes that you made uh, also, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to broaden. How did you decide to go into distilled spirits and what are you distilling? And now you also decided to broaden into what is it? Carbonated, non-alcoholic drinks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we signed a lease in 2011 for the brewery. We didn't brew our first commercial batch till 2013. So that's kind of our established date, 2013. Five years later in 2018, we opened our distillery across the street. Now, that was kind of just a natural progression and evolution of what we are. We're beverage makers, right? To make a distilled spirit, you essentially need to make beer first, a a low alcohol product, then make a higher concentrated uh, alcoholic product. So it was really just a natural evolution of of our passion and our interest and our skill set. Uh, My partner, Aaron, um, you know, the brewmaster and distiller, he teaches brewing, winemaking, and distilling at the University of Houston. This is well within his wheelhouse. He was ready to take the next step and just timing worked out for us. The space across the street worked. And in 2018, we opened up our distillery. Now, it was definitely a learning curve for us. Quite much, it's quite similar to the learning curve we had with graduating from home brewers to having a commercial brewing operation. I'm not ashamed to say that our first year of beer was not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily be proud of it if we released it today, but hey, you've got to start somewhere. You got to learn, you got to improve, you got to grow, right? And similarly with spirits, right? Just, uh, I, like, I like to, I guess, uh, liken a brew house to a stick shift car. It's going to take about a year or 12,000 miles for that car and that driver to kind of get in tune with each other. I, similarly with our craft brewing equipment, we kind of had to dial it in and learn how, you know, what year this works in and shift here and all that. Right. So uh, I'm proud to say our beers have gotten significantly better and have won awards and, you know, we're really proud of where our beers are today. Um, but similarly, when we were learning our distillation, we we're learning on the fly and, and, and tweaking and, and adjusting recipes and procedures. So, um, but that opened in 2018 and, and that was really, again, just a function of we've been brewing beer for five years We've got the skill set, the interest, and 
again, we saw an opportunity. There was no, there was a few other distilleries in Houston, but we were the first brewery distillery to open. My understanding is there's a few other brewers that are going to launch their distilled spirits line soon. Um, there's a bunch of new distilleries, standalone distilleries that are opening up, but um, we're excited to be kind of on that first wave of Houston distilleries and Texas distilleries. But during the pandemic, a few things that kind of forced us to shift and, and change our business model to survive, to evolve. I mean, we built an online store and we got curbside pickup going and we didn't have any of those two things. Now, curbside is kind of a way of the past. We're not really running stuff out to the door anymore, but our online store is running strong. And, you know, people place orders online all the time and will come by and pick it up, walk in and, and grab, grab their items and go. So, you know, that was a, a necessity that we needed. We're like, okay, if we're going to be shut down in the tap room, but they're allowing to go sales, we got to figure out a way to get people here. And that built our online store that we still, um, you know, manage daily. And, and it's, it was a great, um, we needed that. We really, really needed that. On the beverage side of things, um, we definitely went still in the beverage world, but we went in this non-alcoholic direction and to throw a little twist in it, we um, went in the world of hemp. So in 2018, um, the 2018 farm bill legalized hemp and all hemp derivatives so long as they contain less than 0.3% Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, short for THC. Well, in the recent boom of this industry, there uh, is this naturally occurring cannabinoid in the hemp plant that's called Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol. It's essentially the kid brother to Delta-9 THC. And it's legal federally, and it's legal in the state of Texas, and by way of James Beard award-winning chef Chris Shepard in Houston, Texas, who uh, introduced us to the folks at Bayou City Hemp Company, um, we got working on a non-alcoholic reverse osmosis hemp-derived sparkling water. It is lime-flavored, containing 10 milligrams of Delta-8 THC. It is an adult beverage non-alcoholic, but an adult beverage containing Delta-8 THC and um, zero calories, zero sugar. It is a fantastic beverage and we cannot keep up with demand. It is kind of uh, mind-blowing, actually. Oh. Uh, we also have a CBD version of that um, and that's 25 milligram CBD. And then we have a collaborative... 10 milligram Delta eight, uh, beverage with local Houston rapper bun B, but our, what we call herbal seltzer, our herbal, herbal seltzer is called wonder water and, wonder. uh, wonder water. Yeah. You can get it at eighth wonder. You can order it online and you can find it at select retailers throughout Houston and trickling out in the Texas market as well. It's a great, great beverage. And clearly Texans want hemp products and we're happy to, uh, kind of, we were the first herbal seltzer in the state of Texas, and we were one of the first three or four in the country. So what's next? I mean, you've had a really, really interesting decade with everything you've talked about. I mean, the truck, the brick and mortar, the, the brewing at the same time. I get it. And um, how you've done your flavors. Um, I think everyone has made note of the fact that you can, you've got to adjust product to the market. Uh, restaurants do. 
And in your business, you were successful doing the same thing. And then by getting into the distillery and uh, adult non-alcoholic beverages, you've had quite a ride. That's wonderful. Uh, what do you see as your next strategic move? Absolutely. So I'm, I'll break it down on, you know, beer, spirits, and the herbal seltzers. On the beer side, you know, we're going on year nine. We've always said we want Eighth Wonder to be an 88-year-old iconic brand, right? So we got a long way to go for that, right? But, and that just continues to focus on brewing high-quality beverages, being in tune with the market, what consumers want, what's currently offered by other brewers, and just following market trends. You know, you don't need to be necessarily a trend chaser all the time, but keeping your ears and eyes open to kind of what could be that next thing uh, is definitely worth pursuing. You know, we're very community focused and very event driven, continuing those efforts. We want to just continue to being a landmark here in Houston, hosting community events of all kinds, running clubs, yoga, bike clubs, car clubs, you know, CrossFit, jujitsu, live music artists. I mean, you name it, food events, pop-ups, crawfish boils, steak nights and barbecue. I mean, we consider ourselves a community center. And that is a big focus of ours. How can we offer things? And Houston's the most diverse city in America. So we need to offer a lot of different things that attract to a lot of different cultures and demographic and people. You know, I think we try our best to, to, to do that. Um, so continuing to focus on community events, live music, the arts, food, uh, sports and entertainment. You know, that's a big part of who we are and our identity. And we genuinely love doing it. On the spirit side of things, we currently have a uh, eight times distilled vodka. We have a hopped infused gin, really, really tasty. We have a silver rum that's very bold and aromatic, lends itself well to uh, tiki style cocktails and such. We have a nice Texas whiskey, kind of caramely with a nice kind of toasted marshmallow finish. And then we have this collaboration with Chef, this uh, James Beard Award winning Chris Shepard, and we developed a fantastic bourbon with Chris and a portion of proceeds benefit his nonprofit, his charity is called Southern Smoke and Southern Smoke Foundation. It is a charity that supports the hospitality industry, not just in Houston, not just in Texas, but throughout the United States. I think they've raised over five, maybe even eight or $9 million. I think, yeah, right. Uh, and uh, it started with Hurricane Harvey, but basically it's an organization that helps support members of the hospitality industry, bars and restaurant workers, brewers, uh, folks in our industry when they're hit with tough times. So it really started during Hurricane Harvey when Houston was devastated and you know bars and restaurant workers were in a tough spot. And that organization at that time raised $5 million for Harvey and distributed it to bar and restaurant workers throughout the city and the region. Uh, since then, this organization just seems to be supporting the industry as needed. So during the pandemic, when bars and restaurants were shut out and you know workers weren't making paychecks but needed to cover rent, they could turn to Southern Smoke and you know uh, sign up and try to get uh, funds through the organization. So we're really proud to say that uh, you know we contribute one dollar for every bottle sold to Southern Smoke. Our distributor, Silver Eagle, contributes a dollar for every bottle sold. And we're working on a few other distributors to make that commitment as well. We know retailers who are buying this product, bars and restaurants. A lot of them are donating a portion of sales to uh, Southern Smoke in, in an effort to kind of just continue to support this organization that gives back to our industry. 
Um, so those are the five major spirits that we make, but we want to continue to expand that uh, offering and, you know, get into other spirits that we don't currently offer. And then look in the hemp world, I think we've just t- dipped our toes into it. I'm fully hoping and cautiously optimistic that Texas will be more supportive and embrace not only hemp, but the cannabis industry. It seems like we're just sitting back and missing a tremendous opportunity to our economy, to our tax base for employment. It's very antiquated and silly on where it is now. And I say this genuinely, and I say this respectfully, I'm in the alcohol business and alcohol is far more toxic than cannabis and hemp. Okay. Um, I'm not saying, I'm just saying you should enjoy, if you're going to enjoy these substances, you should enjoy both of them responsibly and in moderation. But again, this isn't the, the the hemp and the cannabis plants are, they should be um, legalized and regulated and our state should be benefiting from the tremendous amount of demand that our state wants, because right now we're going out of state to get these products. Now we're able to get the hemp stuff and we're, we're seeing the crazy demand for this. You know, we're hoping it doesn't take a step back in the next legislative session. We hope that this takes a step forward and continues to grow and we're ready to grow with it. We're singing the same tune here in North Carolina, almost word for word. So absolutely. We're hoping, we're hoping that more reasonable minds come to the table and really can make an industry out of this, you know? Well, you're certainly poised well for this. I think it was really smart that you utilize the facilities to get established as the brewery, Eighth Wonder, and and continue to expand on that while you're distilling spirits. Tremendous market demand for that. Introducing your Wonder Water and what hopefully will be more in the uh, non-alcoholic but uh, but adult beverage uh, line, you certainly poised yourself uh, very very well. Thank you. We actually shipped out uh, a few pallets to North Carolina. Where can I ago. find them? What you know? What uh, so that's, the hardest, spot. That's, that's the hardest question for a brewer to answer. Brewer who has distribution, because you know we sell to a distributor, sure. and the distributor gets it out to the to the world, and especially right. for a market that we are. I mean, full full disclosure, I haven't been out to North Carolina yet, uh-huh. right? Um, I mean, I've been, I went to Asheville a decade ago, but a sure. uh, great city. I think it's got more breweries per capita than anywhere in America, or at least that was the stat 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> Probably. Yeah, no, great town, great beer town. Uh, but yeah, we shipped out a few pallets to, to a distributor out there, I'd say about two, three months ago. And we, we'll get tagged online, social media, get emails. Hey, where can I get more of this? And we always kind of connect them with the distributor. Um, but if you're interested, reach out to me and I'll connect you. I will. And I'll be looking for it. Definitely. I think, Barry, you ought to just skip the middleman. And before we get offline here, just give Ryan your address. We can, uh, we can take you got that room out. in your garage for a pallet. Yeah. <laughs> or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I know that, uh, Chris, you know, that when I'm out back in Houston again, this is, this is one of our spots to, uh, to uh, venture out to. So. Be my pleasure. I hope to host you both. Well, you've been a pleasure to talk to, and uh, Thanks, we Chris. will we will be coming by to see you. So for every listener, I think they've, they've got some specific takeaways on how you did what you did and your methodic approach to education uh, and how you poised yourself, how you did what you did to get the amount of businesses in such a short period of time. So for everybody, that's Eighth Wonder Brewery. Look them up. 
Ryan Soroka. Thank you so much for spending your time on Corner Booth. Happy to be here. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Chris. Y'all have a great one. You too. Be well. And all the listeners, please stay, uh, stay tuned. We hope to see you on a Corner Booth very soon. Thanks. We'd like to thank Touch Bistro for sponsoring this episode. Touch Bistro provides an all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform for venues of all sizes, from food trucks to fine dining. Go to touchbistro.com to find out how Touch Bistro can solve your restaurant technology challenges today. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.